Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. Today, we're responding to the question, is secularism good for society? To some people, secularism represents freedom to live in a way that suits them, to no longer let majority religions decide what's right or wrong. For others, it feels like a threat to their spiritual way of life. So is secularism good for society? My name is Amy Isham. Today, we are joined by Michael Bird to help us think through secularism, what it means for society and religion, and some of Mike's theories for resolving the conflict between the sacred and the secular. I would say secularism, at its best, is about creating space for people of all faith and none. It's about determining the areas where religion is not allowed to matter, and then determining the areas where religion is immune from government coercion. Mike is an ordained Anglican priest and the academic dean of Ridley College, Melbourne. Mike has taught at a number of theological colleges in Scotland, America, and across Australia. He's a prolific author and a contributor to many scholarly books and journal articles in the area of New Testament scholarship. But he's also made important contributions to discourse on issues of religion in secular society. Mike has been on many podcasts, blogs frequently on his Substack, and is also very active on Twitter. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Deeper Questions. Well, hello, Amy, and it's great to be with you and all your listeners. So I had a few warm-up questions and something I learned something about you, Mike, early when I first met you. One thing I'm very, very disturbed about is your the obvious hatred that you have for coffee. And I just wonder, is your world sad and miserable without it? Like, how do you cope? No, my, my world is bright, joyful and bountiful because I am not enslaved <laughs> to that black bean <laughs> that has put people under its tyranny of, of bitterness <laughs> and unsweetness. Wow. Okay. That's a pretty good response. So I was texting a friend. I said, oh, I'm going to talk to Michael Bird soon. And she sent me these two facts about you that also shocked me. Uh, and the first one is that you hate cats uh, and we're both cat lovers. Is this true? Is this true, Mike? I, I wouldn't say I hate cats. I'm just morally indifferent to them. Ah, uh, okay. You know, if I have to choose between a cat and a dog, I just do not even see the choice uh, because, you know, we, we have a dog. So when, when we come home, literally, the dog is the only person who is glad to see me. Uh, everyone else is kind of just remains doing the thing, but the dog is like, oh, my gosh, it's you again. Aww. It's wonderful to see you. It's been yeah. eight hours since I've seen you. And, <laughs> I mean, the, the dog greets you like a relative you haven't seen in 10 years. And, oh, uh, well, that's whereas, sweet. Whereas cats are more like, yeah. Maybe you just haven't met any good cats. Or maybe, maybe. The other thing I learned about you, which I thought was really interesting, and I, and I remember you mentioned being in the military. As a theologian and a priest, what led you from your original training as a paratrooper? Like, how did you get there and how did, why did you leave uh, the military? Oh, for a whole bunch of reasons. I, I joined the military because I couldn't get into university. You know, my grades were not good enough. I was basically like a C-plus student. Interesting. Um, oh. I was relatively good in arts and humanities, average at science, horrible at math. Mm. So uh, you ha I had to get away from my parents as well. My parents were very dysfunctional. Mm. Yeah, joining the army was literally the only option for me. So I joined the army and I weighed 45 kilograms. I mean, oh my gosh. I'm, you know, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm short five, you know, five, five, six and a half. I'm not a tall guy. I was very small and scrawny and uh, I had to physically and emotionally mature very, very quickly. Because I was, I was like 17 when I joined. Wow. 
Wow. So I was a, I was a young lad. Yeah, but I, you know, I became a Christian while I was in the army. You know, uh, I didn't come oh, from wow. a Christian home. Got invited to a church. Went to a lovely little Baptist church, um, just on the south side of Liverpool, now called Southwestern uh, Baptist Community Church, I believe. Had a great time there. Got uh, you know saved, as we would say, and, and discipled. I then moved to military intelligence, which was uh, I found a much more uh, dignified lifestyle, suiting to my uh, gifts, abilities, and stature. Um, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed military intelligence. But I, I thought, you know, it'd be good to, you know, serve in some Christian ministry as well. I thought about maybe becoming an army chaplain. But when I went through seminary, it became clear that my giftings were more on the academic side, mm. which I think was a carryover from what I was doing in military intelligence. That's really just, you know, working with copious amounts of information mm. and mm. sending it out to the people who need to get it. Mm. From there, I just, you know, went through seminary, Bible college, did a, a couple of other, you know, graduate degrees, end up teaching in Scotland, then back in Brisbane, then uh, been here in Melbourne at Ridley College for the last 10 years. And yeah, it, it's true what you say about intelligence, like not that I've been in the intelligence, but being in academia where you're meant to process vast swathes of data and make it simple, you know, write, write 100,000 words and then write it in one sentence. So how is that, how is intelligence similar to, in that sense? What sort of data are you processing? Well, you're dealing with all sorts of things, and there's different types of intelligence, whether you're working in counterintelligence, which is stopping people from spying on us. There's the the more um, tactical or operational side where you're concerned about, you know, how many how many tanks and how many soldiers and how many bullets does the other guy have? What's he going to do with them? What does he normally do with them when he's got at them? You know, that's that kind of thing. Mm. Then you've got strategic intelligence where you look at the capabilities of nation states You've got things like threat assessments. Uh, threat is measured by two things, capability plus intent. Mm. So you've got to constantly assess your neighbours. Uh, what is their capability and what is their intent around you? Mm. And how do you create a national defence policy uh, around your threat environment? So, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting part of the world. Every now and again, you know, I, I, I keep, I keep uh, I read a few books on geopolitical affairs and, you know, intelligence and espionage. And uh, I mean, several of the people I work used to work with have now achieved prominent places in public life. One of my old bosses, Luke Gosling, is now the Labor member for Palmerston in Darwin. Mm. And one of my old um, uh, intelligence bosses is now probably the leading um, defense intelligence academic in the country in John Blacksland. Mm. So uh, I worked with a, with a, a few people who actually themselves went on to very... Um, important place in in public life and national defence policy. Wow. So this might make a good segue into talking about your book and why we're here. Do you think that your interest in uh, politics and that kind of defence level and how our country works, I guess, on that level, perhaps influenced your interest in secular society? Undoubtedly. You know, I'm interested. You can't do your religion independent of society, independent of culture. So they're all they're all mixed together. Mm. No church, mosque, synagogue uh, is an island uh, removed from the influence, uh, the laws mm. or the culture around them. So we have to pay uh, attention to these things and think about how they are there for better or worse. So, yeah, I was naturally interested in that topic mm. and particularly the sort of discourses we have around secularism, whether secularism is a kind of a bogeyman, a big hammer there to hunt and hound religious communities, but also discovering an alternative narrative that secularism is, in fact, a Christian creation mm. designed to preserve the religious liberty of minority groups. Yeah, and this is this is what I why I wanted to talk to you today is I, I found your book really encouraging in that sense because I think 
it is the new Ouija board. Like um, this is the 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 story, the bogeyman story that we're telling and creating fear potentially in Christian circles, and we're creating this sense of enmity between um, the so-called in quotation marks secular society and the religious society. So. I'd really like to start with your definition of what secular is, because I think that's a really helpful one. Well, I would say secularism, at its best, in its ideal form, is about creating space for people of all faith and none. It's about determining the areas where religion is not allowed to matter, largely in government, and then determining the areas where religion is immune from government coercion. Mm. Uh, That, in a nutshell, is how I would define ideal secularism, But I think it's very important to point out, Amy, that secularism is not one thing. Mm. There are very different ways of being secular, ranging from like North Korea, where if if the government catches you doing anything religious, they catch you praying, owning a religious book, they will put you in prison or line you up against the wall and shoot you. Mm. Uh, you've got Turkey, which which is a secular state. It's an Islamic secular state, although that it's a little bit more politically Islamic now. But, you know, the the uh, the founding of the modern state of Turkey, or was it Turkey or whatever you call it now, um, that, that's, a, that's a secular country and one of the few examples of Islamic secularism. And then, you, then you've got laicite, what they have in France. And that's a little bit different because it's roots in the French, uh, the Third French Republic, uh, mm. which which was largely an, an anti-Catholic program, mm. uh, has a few uh, pros and cons to it. And you've got British secularism. I mean, here's the thing, you know, Britain technically has two national churches in the Church of Scotland and the Church of England. Mm. Uh, and yet you have a you know nominally Christian king. You have a Hindu prime minister. I think they've got a, uh, a Buddhist foreign secretary and a uh, Muslim mayor of London. Mm. So even with a kind of sort of quasi-state church, you have an incredibly pluralistic society. That's because the mixture of religious heritage is combined with a certain degree of secularity, which allows allows the United Kingdom to be a pluralistic country where different faith groups and people of no faith are able to exist side by side with a relative degree of harmony. Mm. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's a really positive vision, and I like that. What do you think our government, particularly our Australian government, means when they say secular? Do you think they mean the same thing? Do you think there's an understanding there? Oh, well, it can, it can be a difference whether you're talking about the federal government or the state government. That The Australian Constitution uh, does enshrine the secularity of the Commonwealth government, and, but this is the problem. Um, we have a separation of church and state, Uh, enshrined constitutionally at the federal level, Mm. but it's a little bit more opaque uh, and unclear at the state level, which is why we have a a number of the debates we're having about secularism, religious freedom uh, at the moment. And Mm. part of the problem is we do have this gap, this this lacuna uh, in our federal, um, in in national legislation about religious freedom because Mm. the constitutional protections only apply to the federal government not to the state government. And each state has kind of done its own thing about uh, religious freedom and, you know, associated con- cognate rights. Yeah, and that's really helpful to understand. I mean, I think we all noticed that so much during COVID, that separation between the federal and the state and that diversity. And in some ways you think, well, there's probably a healthy diversity there because states are different and we don't want Sydney deciding everything for us or Canberra. 
However, I think that's that's where that diversity is happening, and we're seeing those differences in uh, in law and in policy. Um, so I might get back to some of those applications a bit later. But one of the things I think is interesting, you talked about needing more tolerance for dissent. Can you give us some examples of where we need this and why? Yeah, I think yeah, we definitely need that. Um, you know. One thing that makes a a liberal democratic society liberal is that minority opinions are tolerated. Now, there will always be um, limits Mm. on toleration. For example, if you start doing things that are flat out treasonous or violating other people's human rights, you know, like you you can't really go around inciting um, violence against um, other human beings, we would put a limit there. Mm. But generally... Liberalism means people have the right to hold unpopular opinions, and that includes even in matters of religion. And historically, if you try to prosecute or persecute religious minorities, it never tends to end well. Mm. If you begin attacking people because you don't like their religion, uh, it always has bad consequences. And we could go through the history of this ranging from the Maccabean Revolt against the Seleucids in the second century BC in, in ancient Israel, all the way through to the Cristera Ray uprising in Mexico in the 1930s, mm. trying to uh, put the boot down on the throats of religious communities you don't like never ends well. Mm. And that's really helpful. I think having those historical examples, ones that we've probably forgotten or or never learned, like I've I'd never heard of them. And perhaps going back to kind of dovetailing back to that federal state distinction there, we've seen perhaps an example of um, New South Wales and Victoria having slightly different anti-conversion laws, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, we use the term identity politics, but it's something that's really appealing and liberating for some people, the sense that their identity is celebrated, but then for other people it, it feels frustrating and pointless how do you think we can reduce inequality in our society without knee-jerk reactions that oppress, as you say, oppress minorities or oppress religious groups? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, religion should not be used as a weapon to to, you know, to harm or to injure um, other minorities, whether those minorities are political, racial, ethnic, or religious. So we, we don't want to see uh, religion weaponized, you know, in particular, I guess, in our current context, against sexual minorities. Okay, mm. uh, which would mean, you know, if you if you're a, uh, an employer of, say, a supermarket, you can't sack your employees for being Muslim or gay or something mm. like that. We would recognize that's a good thing. Uh, mm. the, the problem is that the line between religion and wider society gets blurred in areas such as education. So where you have, mm. say, Christian schools is probably the, you know, or Muslim schools is a good example, uh, where these are being run by religious uh, groups, largely for a religious purpose. So education would have a religious texture to it. And yet they do mm. receive a, a degree of state funding and they also receive uh, a degree of state ed- accreditation and they have to work with, you know, state governments on curriculum syllabus policy so that it's kind of a gray area but there's other gray areas like you have you have christian chaplains in hospitals the police force the military there are these number of gray zones where church and state though normally separate do cooperate in certain tasks Mm. such as pastoral care and education and it's what do you do when the uh the values of these religious groups are out of sync with the policies and the state and even out of sync with maybe some of the majority of opinions in the wider culture 
And this is mm. the problem. So do you allow uh, religious schools to only hire people who uh, adhere to the principles of their religion? Or do you force them uh, to do things against their religious conviction, against their religious conscience, simply because you can? Uh, and that pleases mm. another part of your own constituency. So this, this, this is probably the epicenter of the conflict at the moment. And that's certainly apparent if you read the Australian Law Reform Commission, which, quite frankly, um, the, the document itself attempts to run roughshed over international standards of religious freedom and really wants to empower the, the state governments to be able to interfere and coerce religious schools in, in matters of religion. Yeah, and that's a really helpful way of looking at it. It's That's the epicentre that we're seeing right now. So if we can resolve those issues, you hope that there might be some harmony in other areas. So, but a lot of the time in the media, and I mean, you're on Twitter, and depending on which tunnel you're in, you'll see more negative or more positive responses to religion. But I'm starting to get the feeling that there's a large, a large number of people that I would totally resonate with on a lot of other things feel that religion is bad and it's bad for society and damaging. Why do you think that they're feeling that way? Oh, well, it's, it's part of a narrative that goes back to the 19th century. I mean, back in the 19th century, there was all these atheist myths that Christians believe in a flat earth, um, you know, that the Christians, they were anti-science, they were all these sorts of things, they didn't believe in, in this and that. And it, and it was, to be frank, it was kind of like humanist, oft, often just anti-Catholic propaganda coming out of the 19th century. But it's it's a line that gets you know raised up every now and again by a popular journalist like Christopher Hitchens or a Richard Dawkins. It, it comes along the line. The reality is far more complex, and if anything, Christianity has uh, contributed to uh, our liberal democracy. And this is where I've got to simply defer to the to the um, wonderful book by Tom Holland, um, Dominion, mm. which shows that our our culture is well and truly Christianized all the way down. Mm. Even the diehard atheist has uh, unconsciously fully internalized the Christian revolution. He or she may not know it. But, you know, when atheists go around trying to um, urge people to put down no religion on the um, national census, they're effectively acting like a Protestant evangelist, mm. you, know, they, you know, that that kind of a thing. And the, the whole concept of human rights, even our culture wars are largely fought over Christian things. Um mm. Uh, or two two different Christian values coming into conflict, like a good example, abortion. You know, mm. women should have autonomy over their own bodies, but how do you protect the vulnerable and young, uh, even in utero? I mean, these are two good things, mm. uh, but uh, but only one side seems to realise that they're um, arguing in Christian currency. The other side thinks they're arguing in non-Christian currency, and that's and that's what Tom Holland says the culture wars are. This is largely an in-house Christian conversation. Mm. But only one side of the ledger understands that they're arguing Christian currency. Yeah, and that's that's really helpful to think is how much of religion is kind of stamped across our culture and our history, even our education and policy, and that's why the the discussions are going to be difficult to resolve. So I want to go back to your definitions of secularism because I find them really interesting. You've talked about the different flavours of secularism. You've got um, the secularism you see in Australia and you talked about some examples in France or in other countries. But how would you say secularism differs to, say, America or the Middle East? Well, the Middle East doesn't really have secularism. They have just an Islamic culture with varying degrees of tolerance um, for minority groups. So, you know, say in Saudi Arabia, they recognise they've got a lot of Western business people 
or who come over and work, you know, in business industry in Saudi Arabia. So they they allow them to have a church, you know, in in downtown so these people can practice their religion. But they don't really have a legal framework Mm. that has the purpose of creating a pluralistic country. Um, it's going to be Islamic all, all, all the way down. Hmm. Um, Australia and America are similar in many ways. Well, Australia basically uh, adopted in its constitution a British appropriation of the American constitution when it came to a religion. We adopted a the uh, United States' non-establishment clause, so the government won't establish religion, and the free exercise clause. So our constitution is kind of what you could call a British appropriation of the the American system. So there's probably a lot more similarities between Australia and America than there is between Australia and Britain. When Australia Mm. was founded, we were very adamant we were not going to have a national church. So there wasn't going to be a church of Australia Mm. in the same way there was a church of England or a church of Scotland. So we're we're a little bit closer. Uh, Probably the big difference between us and America is the Secularity in America is very much driven by local lo- local constituencies. Thus, it's the it's the local and state culture that determines the nature of secularism. Whereas in Australia, it does tend to be a little bit more top down. Mm. So we tend to have a secularism that's driven by the federal government or the state governments. But in America, the secularity of Boston is very different from the secularity of somewhere like Dallas or the secularity of Los Angeles. Uh, it's a lot more localized. In fact, there's even a PhD thesis that's been written comparing America and Australia by, um, mm. I think it's by Damien uh, Marl, who looked at that. And that's his conclusion is that Australia and America, for all their similarities, uh, are different because Australian secularity is a little bit more top down, whereas in America, it's mm. more localized and driven by local issues, debates, and discussions. But one thing I'm interested in, and I, I, I feel it's it gave me a lot of confidence and peace, was as a religious person, as a priest, and as a like an academic dean, you seem one of the least, one of the people who are least threatened by secularism that I've seen. So, do you want to talk more about why that is? Yeah, I mean, there is what we you can talk about uh, aggressive secularization, and there there is the attempt to uh, diminish the presence of religion in the public square. Okay, mm. so that there, there is an aggressive type of secularism, you know, built on the idea that, you know, people of faith, their voices, their views, the very visible presence should be eradicated from the public sphere. I mean, th- there is that, and that's often what we think secularism is, but that's just one kind of like militant version. We, we could call that secular jihad, okay, mm. just the secular jihad, but not all secularism is secular jihad, if you Mm. get what I mean. Secularism was basically the idea of how do we have peace in Europe, given that our countries, our states are divided between Protestants and Catholics, plus Mm. a few Jewish people around here and there. So how do we create peace? Because we don't want to do these wars of religion over again, because this is just ripping each other apart. So how do we live in a country where we've got a mixed Catholic and, and Protestant population? And of course, the same principle, though, was also very useful for when you have a more multicultural country where you've got people of of no religion, you've got Sikhs, Muslims, you know, Buddhists coming to your country. Now, the same principle applies to that. So secularism was about two things. It says, look, we're not going to have an official state religion and mandate religious adherence by the people. Okay, we're not going to replace the prime minister Hmm. or the king with a pope 
Dalai Lama or Ayatollah. We're not going to be a theocracy. And, and I think we'll all agree that's good. Don't be a theocracy because it leads to a superficial type of religion and it simply becomes more a habit, a habit of civic duty than mm. real deep piety and affection. So theocracy is bad, okay? So that's one side mm. of secularism. But the flip side is, is the government doesn't tell you how to do your religion. It doesn't appoint... Um, it doesn't appoint like the new Archbishop of Melbourne, or it doesn't appoint the new um, head of the Baptist Union, or it doesn't appoint you know senior leaders in the Mormon Church. Okay, or it doesn't tell people what the Mormon doctrines are. It doesn't tell people how to be Buddhist. It doesn't tell Christians what worship songs they can and can't sing. It doesn't take out passages of their scriptures that the government regards as too subversive or unpopular. Mm. And that's that's the two sides of it. No theocracy. Okay, so we're not going to allow the religious bodies to take over, but we're also not going to coerce people and tell them how to do their religion. And Mm. that is why I think secularism is a good thing. Mm. It means religious bodies can never have all the power, which is good because power Mm. corrupts, but government is not going to intimidate you and coerce you in matters of religion. And if we think of secularism along those two lines, although we might come up with some different ideas about how to do it, if we think about those two lines, we have to say that type of secularism is good for everybody. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that Jewish minority because I live in near Caulfield, very Jewish area, and it's uh, and there's more and more yeshivas going up, and there's all the people walking around the eruvs on the on the Saturdays, and it, it feels very positive, and it's uh, and there's a, people get this sense of it being a very positive thing, but is religion good for society? If you're not religious, and how? Well, I, I think you have to say historically it is, uh, because you know if you, I mean, what's the, I mean, what's the alternative? The only alternative is you start, you know, punishing people for being religious, and mm. so it, it comes down not to a question: is religious good for society? I mean, there are certain types of Christianity I don't like. There's certain types of Islam I don't like. But if you're going to, you know, say, well, it's bad. Therefore, it's after the therefore, you go to a real ugly place and mm. you end up like, like you know, North Korea, China, the Soviet Union, where mm. you've got to do very um, evil things to eradicate religion. And so the alternative, I mean, if you don't like religion, the alternative, I think, is too terrible to imagine. But I would say religion is good for society. And there's a whole bunch of sociological studies and philosophies that point this out. Um, religion is good because you know it gives people rhythms to life. It creates community, and and more controversially, it also means. And I think this is important. People are allowed to regard their ultimate purpose in life in something that is not controlled or orientated towards the state. Mm. Okay, and this this is this is why I think religion. It means uh, I, I don't have to treat the state, the government as my own personal almighty savior. I'm allowed to find purpose and meaning in life beyond what the state may regard as what is good for me. And it means my allegiance, my 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 devotion, my pattern of life, the rhythms of how I go about my life do not have to be determined according to things sanctioned and decreed by the state. Mm. I think we we need to have a society with religion or religious freedom because if we don't, then the state will regard itself as being almighty mm. and having the power to regulate and control the consciences, the consciences of its citizens towards its own ends. 
And I think that's bad. And this is why I say to people, if you get rid of religion, people will still be religion, but politics will replace religion. And trust me, that ends badly. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really uh, a really good way of expressing it. So, and this is a good segue to the next point, is in 2016, I remember the space that people were in during a Trump presidency and Margaret Atwood's uh, dystopia, The Handmaid's Tale. There were these distinctions and, and correlations drawn between the Trump presidency and, and a potential Margaret Atwood dystopia. However, we've got, we do have very strong secular cultural uh, views coming out now. Which do you think is worse, uh, like a true theocracy, the Christian Nationalist Society, or a progressive authoritarian society? And could you unpack what those would be like? Oh, boy. I mean, that's, that's like being asked, would you rather be hit in the head with a brick or being hit in the head with a mallet? <laughs> um, I think they're, po- I think they're, both, they're both terrible. Mm. I don't know if I can really separate the degree of terribleness um, I mean, Christian theocracy is undoubtedly bad, and it's really concerning now, particularly in the United States, uh, that you have this resurgence of Christian nationalism. I mean, sadly, amongst Baptists, and Baptists should have separation of church and state wired into their theological mm. DNA, mm. and yet many of its uh, their key leaders of a more conservative bent are, you know, flirting with the idea of Christian nationalism, and this is really, really bad. I don't think it's going to end up in handmaid's tale territory. I think that's a little bit over the top, but it can lead to some very unhealthy and unwholesome consequences for the for the American Republic. So that's bad. Uh, but by the same time, same token, uh, yeah, there is a progressive authoritarianism um, out there. And I think you see probably one of the worst places for this at the moment, I, I would say, is, is perhaps Canada. Mm. Um, Canada is a, is a place where religious freedom does get defined very, very narrowly. And certainly anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, um, the, the views there are, are quite, quite frankly, bordering on the extreme. And yeah, so I, I, do, I do have equal uh, worries there on, on both sides. It, it's, um, I mean, there's, I mean it's, it's kind of a spectrum. I mean, there's degrees of Christian nationalism, you know. I mean, mm. in America, all politicians finish by saying, God bless America. I mean, that would, I mean, that would never work in the Australian context, you know, it's, just not where where we are at as a, as a nation, but I do get alarmed, and I was alarmed during the what was it the twenty when was it the 2017, 2018 election with Bill Shorten, the Australian Labor Party was taking pot shots at religious groups um, because they thought it was going to win them some votes, mm. and they were operating on the premise: the more they attack people who worship, the more the Australian people will worship them. Mm. And I'm very grateful that that backfired. Because um, you know they were bringing in you know Israel Folau, they wanted to talk about George Pell, they wanted to pin all of that on Scott Morrison mm. because he was a Pentecostal, and I got the feeling that they had done all their canvassing somewhere between Circular Key and Newtown, <laughs> where I'm sure taking pot shots at people of faith would be very popular, but amongst the ethnic working class, mm. uh, no, <laughs> you know the uh, you know uh, uh, Marianites from from you know Lebanon, um, Chinese Methodists. Sudanese, Anglicans, um, you know, or, or Muslims from uh, Jordan, they do not like seeing people of faith being trampled on because they all know they could easily be next. And the Australian Labor Party's, you know, report on how they lost the unlosable election said exactly that. <laughs> they they need to cultivate a more positive relationships with two groups, which was um, religious-based voters and the Asian, com- the Asian community. 
Mm. And uh, so I think there is the capacity for that. And certainly in Victoria, the Andrews government, I think, has deliberately cultivated a hostile relationship with religious communities, uh, precisely because it's pleasing mm. to a certain a certain class, a certain constituency, who are probably the, the, the main block of stakeholders in the in the Andrews government. So yeah, I, th- I think the idea that progressive governments um, will take a more um, militant or coercive hand against religious communities. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think we're going to see bishops, you know, rounded up and shot or executed. But I, I do think we will see a more um, a more adversarial context in the future. I mean, the irony is I gave a talk on this at um, at City on a Hill several months ago, where I, I talked about religious freedom, and we'll have a uh, a more adversarial context. And City on a Hill is a is an Anglican church in Melbourne, hmm. and uh, yes, yeah, several several weeks later, uh, a member of the church, Andrew Thorburn was given an ultimatum by the football club where he was CEO, Essendon Football Club. He was given the ultimatum: either resign from the job as CEO or resign from his position on board of the church. Hmm. And that was not for anything he said or did. I mean, he'd been the chairman of a bank. He was a CEO of a couple of banks with very inclusive hiring policies and supported LGBT communities and LGBT causes. Hmm. And some of the, the things done at City on a Hill Church were, were these were sermons that were preached long before he'd even been been there. But he was being asked to, to he was asked to leave, not for anything he said or did but simply on the basis of association. Mm. And that was something that the the, the Premier, Daniel Andrews, uh, was certainly supportive of. And that's what worries me about the future. I think we are going to have a far more punitive exercises against religious communities. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the Victorian um, Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission are not going to side with religious communities. I mean... Um, Roe Allen, who's the head of that, said, well, you know, um, Andrew Thorburn resigned, so there's nothing to see here. Whereas, I mean, quite frankly, Essendon Football Club violated every single law there was mm. about discrimination on the basis of religion. So mm. the the Andrew Thorburn case really does concern me because mm. it shows that there is a degree of a social hostility, not government hostility yet, but that there is a degree of social hostility. And, and Australia does score high in social hostility to religion on international metrics, not government hostility, but social hostility towards religion. And that includes Islamophobia, mm. anti-Semitism, and, you know, pathological hatred of Catholics, which you get in certain parts of the media. So, yeah, I, I am I am, I am, a little bit concerned, but it's as long as it's only social opposition, when the governments decide to legislate or speak more vocally you know when when hating catholics jews and muslims becomes an election winner mm. you know we were in problems as a, as a multicultural liberal democracy but so far i like to think it's not that bad and maybe a good example of the the good side of that is when um pubs and clubs australia took a took a, a jab at um new south wales premier dom perrette you know saying that all his anti-pokies reform is being driven by his Catholic gut. <laughs> and that the guy who said that was then forced to resign. I think there are some people who recognize you shouldn't be able to take dig at other people because of their religion. But that's in New South Wales, in Victoria. Uh, in Victoria, I tend to think that attacking people because of their religion um, is a great way to score political points. Anyway, but I'm getting a little bit ranty now, so I'll no, stop No, no, that's good. We, we like the rants. More, more rants, more content. It's great. Um, but yeah, I like what you distinguished there. I think that's a good marker to look for is that difference between the just the social, because right now we've got 
social shames, social smacks where people are shamed and the people that are, that have spoken to me about their response to Andrew Thorburn and they're usually quite not really up there about their faith but they're in a position where they if if their faith became a thing it would be significant for them they're feeling nervous people that I would have thought are quite comfortable are starting to feel a bit nervous so I think that's a really interesting marker is if we go okay we get smacks in the media we get made to look bad we get sort of socially punished and that feels very uncomfortable for an Australian so the social is very very powerful we know that but when it becomes an election winner that's when we start to go okay well what are we dealing with there we do have the problem as well in education uh, between the laws in Victoria and what is being proposed by the Australian Law Reform Commission mm. um, it's not the worst case scenario but it's the second worst case scenario and that is really where many schools, uh, it depends how it plays out, but I, I fear that in many schools, Christian schools, Muslim schools, there seems to be an argument in effect that the only person in the school who has to be of a religious disposition is the school chaplain. Mm. And that schools um, should not really be able to make any position in the school designated for a religious practitioner unless the function of that is expressly religious, and you can you can raise the question: What's what's Christian about teaching French? Mm. What's Christian about teaching maths? Mm. Uh, you know, a principal is an administrator. I mean, there's no there's no liturgy involved. Does the principal of a Christian school uh, need to be uh, Christian? And mm. uh, there there are those who do think you know maybe forcing Muslims to hire a gay atheist will teach them a lesson. Mm. Um, you know, and that, that's what I think is coming next. And, and that's, and I can tell you from, from people I've spoke to that the religious schools associations in Australia are quite fearful of what is coming next. Mm. There does seem to be an attempt to quite frankly, breed people of faith out of their own schools and institutions. And that's what, that's where I think we're about to see the next wave. I don't want to call it persecution. I don't think it persecution is the right word. I mean, we're trying to balance different. We're trying to balance religious freedom with the um, rights for sexual minorities, which, again, in ethos, I'm in in favour. Mm. But I think at the moment, it's it's going to be running roughshod on the um, the international um, rights of uh, religious communities to um, raise their own children in in education um, mm. according to their own their own beliefs and to practice freedom in community. You're so right there. We want we want people who are in minorities to feel safe and accepted in our culture. But how do we avoid that also eroding the rights of Christian schools particularly to teach what they want to teach, hire who they want to hire to get the kind of Christian formation that the parents want their children to have as well? That's exactly the right. I mean, I don't think hire, forcing a Muslim school to hire a gay atheist as their principal is going to work out, mm. What we, which is not going to lead to equality and tolerance. It's going to antagonize and create further tensions in society. Mm. What we need is something where you can have like a Christian school, a, you know, gay rights legal advocacy center, mm. um, you know, mm. and a kind of, you know, Muslim business association all sitting next to each other on the street and mm. everyone lives together in harmony. That's what we need. Yeah. So you can, so you can like a Muslim businessmen's association, LGBT legal resource center and a Christian school all on the same street and nobody wants to burn each other down. Okay. Yeah. That is that should be our goal as a society, mm. not forcing uh not not forcing the um the LGBT to kind of, you know, um 
be imprisoned because of anti-sodomite laws. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not, not kind of, you know, forcing the Catholics or the Christians to do things against their conscience. We've got to find ways to live at peace with each other, mm. which means recognizing people will need to have their own spaces to be different and have views, even if they're unpopular. But mm. uh, that attempt to manage differences in diversity, that can be done different ways and mm. people have different ideas of how to resolve that tension. Yeah, uh, and I really like that vision. You've got this idea of rather than a an institution itself needing to bow to a state structure and that, that structure being imposed upon them, instead you you look at relationships between perhaps this lobby or this group, like in Victoria, our safe church there's a good relationship between a lot of churches and social services and police, for example. Exactly. And we want that. We want that. I mean, if you if you end up with religious communities are the villains, mm. you're going to break down social cohesion. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be different. It's, it's no, nobody wins. Mm. Nobody wins. Except maybe the the um the ideagogues who are, are out there saying that, you know, Catholics are out there conspiring to hurt your gay children. Mm. Or, mm. you know, or else, you know, the um uh, or the or, or something like the um, the progressives are coming to rip the headscarves off Muslim women, you know. Um, you know, mm. no, no, that, nobody wins when we ferment those kind of differences and tensions. The only people who win are the politicians of the left and right who weaponize hatred against the other mm, and get some votes. Yeah. So, and you have an alternative, like apart from this solution that we just created about. Uh, policy and relationships between institutions, which, you know, we've solved that there, Mike. But the theory that you had that I really liked, because um, if you if any any Christian worth their salt would have heard of the Benedict Option, which I'll briefly explain, is uh, a book by Rod Dreyer where he proposed that Christians will need to create their own safe spaces, perhaps similar to the monasteries of the ancient of, of you know, medieval times, where we were able to kind of educate in our own way, do things in our own way. But you press, you proposed what you call the Thessalonian strategy, and you said it has two pronged approach. And you talked about uh, championing confident pluralism and challenging the new legal structures. So, did you want to explain that some more? Yep, sure thing. Um, I, I think we what we what we I mean, the Benedict option sounds very good if you live in an anomaly Christian context. So. You can, you know, I mean, and, and, and Rod Dreher doesn't mean that we completely withdraw from society. He says, you know, create your own book clubs, your own schools, create your own kind of, you know, siloed culture. Um, now, I think that's got some problems on the missional side, uh, you know, being salt and light of the earth. But more importantly, uh, there are some aggressive types of secularism. There are some progressive activists who are never going to allow you to do that wherever you go they will come down and hunt you down because for some of them, the more extreme versions, the, like I said, the secular jihadists, the very existence of these communities is something of a hate crime. Mm. Uh, and so that there is no place you can go. There is no safe space you can retreat to. Okay. Uh, but the solution to that is not contrary to our American friends, some sort of, you know, Christian nationalism. Let's find ourselves with a, a kind of um, political messiah who will crush our progressive enemies who will cut off all the man buns, all those, you know, soy boys or whatever. Um, that's not the solution. We need What we need to be champions of is what, what, what John Inazu calls confident pluralism, hmm. where, you know, everyone is able to pursue their own, uh, their own lo- rhythms of life and happiness. Or to quote um, Hamilton, quoting Micah um, uh, 4, everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid. 
that mm. should be our goal for society. And I mm. think we're going to do that not by going the route of the progressives because progressives, political progressives are not pluralists. They don't believe in pluralism. They believe in be progressive or be punished, you know, in its worst form. Mm. So, uh, you know, if we're not going to do Christian nationalism, if we're not going to do this coercive progressivism, then we need to be able, we need to be resilient to do that. So we need to stand for a a, a genuine liberal democracy, but we've got to be willing to be a subversive force against all forms of authoritarianism, whether they're from the left and the right. And what I've uh, proposed in the Thessalonian option, this is named when Paul got to Thessalonia and him and his, him and his uh, entourage, his co-workers were known for turning the world upside down. Mm. And in the face of, uh, of authoritarians, we need to turn the world upside down. Whether that's, like I said, whether that's against the Christian nationalist or the um, uh, left-wing authoritarian, we've got to turn the world upside down. We've got to love God, love others, um, create communities where we're rooted in love rather than on demonizing and attacking others. Mm. We've got to find people, uh, friends we can work with across the Christian spectrum and even, even in the interfaith sector, since we all have a vested interest in one another's religious freedom. An attack on the religious freedom of Muslims can easily be ca- become an attack on the religious freedom of Jews and so forth. So we've got to build these coalitions and work for a pluralistic, tolerant and inclusive society. Yeah, and I think that a lot of this speaks to, I think, a lot of Christian anxiety. Well, like we're frightened of losing our spiritual way of life or or becoming diminished. But I think um, I think a lot of atheists and perhaps non-religious people can feel that they are not part of a religious society, that they're not. Like this Thessalonian strategy, I feel, speaks to them too. But how do you think that we could express that? Oh, I mean, the best way to express that is, to, I mean, if you look at history, you know, um, atheist regimes are not the nicest places to live and good to their people. I mean, who looks at the Soviet Union and says, yeah, I want to get me some of that? Mm. Uh, or look at the way China treats the Uyghur Muslims, or in fact, a number of Christian pastors like Wang Yi, who have been um, locked up simply because they won't integrate the state, mm. uh, its goals, its ideals into their religion. I mean, who, who in their right mind wants something like that? Mm. And of course, we also don't want the Christian nationalist options. I mean, who looks at, you know, what Putin is doing with the Orthodox Church mm. and says, yeah, we want to, we want to be like that, you know? But, you know, whenever the um, premier or president speaks, we say this is the word of the Lord. None of us want to do that. Mm. And that means we're going to have to find ways to live with differences and live in peace. Yeah. And that means everyone's not going to get what they want, mm. but we're going to get enough of what we need to live together in peace. And, and let me just add one final thing there. Um, Christians have got to make sure that they distinguish loss of hegemony from loss of freedom. Just because your religion is no longer hegemonic, just because they no longer say the Lord's Prayer before Parliament, just because you know the, the uh, leading politicians no longer suck up to you know leading religious figures, uh, that's not persecution. That's not a loss, loss of freedom. Okay, mm. that just means you're, you're no longer being the, the main cultural um, hegemon at the time. Mm. We've got to really make sure we understand the difference between cultural hegemony or cultural priority and genuine uh, legal rights from the Constitution and international standards of religious freedom. That is what I think we've got to champion. Mm. And the danger is we can confuse the two and think that loss of hegemony is a form of persecution. Uh, It's not. I think that's a very important distinction, but one that's often lost. 
Yeah, and I think that's important. Uh, so on one hand, Christians, we've got to learn to just let go of having the the monopoly, having that power that we perceived that we had in the past, because I think what we also want to communicate to our fellow humans, uh, atheists, Muslims, Jews, and and beyond, we want to show that we're not in, we're not trying to take over, we're not trying to threaten, we're not trying to control, well, some of us are, but but we pray that we don't do that as much and that we're trying to actually contribute to the flourishing of all people in society. We're not trying. So do you think, I think that's part of what we've, we're trying to do is we're trying to communicate to culture that we're not there to take over. And I guess we'd also like to speak to the hostility that we're feeling from culture where they're, they're threatened by perhaps some of our views that perhaps feel to threaten them. Yeah, exactly. And it, the problem is every movement has its extremists and the danger is to judge the entire movement by the extremists. Mm. Okay. Um, I would not want Christians in Australia to be judged or associated with some of the extreme examples that you find in the United States. Mm. Okay. And the same thing, most Muslims, I like to think, won't want us to judge them by some of the extremist things um, you might find in, uh, in the Middle East. You know, mm. like like you know, ISIS or you know, something like that. Mm. Uh, so that that's that's what we've got to do, and we've got to find ways, principally, to live together and have a set of laws, values, and a culture where we can live together in relative peace and harmony. I mean, there's always going to be points of conflict, but you've got to have institutions that have the mechanisms for dealing with those conflicts, like you know, religious freedom and LGBT rights, dealing with that mm. in an equitable way rather than simply adopting a hierarchy of identities. Mm, uh, mm. I think that's that's better. We need to have the rule of law, not rule by social media, uh, not rule by which group is despised the most, or not ruled by a, a hierarchy of, of identities in and in a progressive matrix. That's amazing. Thank you. So I thought one last question. You talked about your faith and why you dedicated your life to faith and um, how... You went from, you know, paratrooping to intelligence to Christianity. What's so important about your faith that you did make that change, that you dedicated your whole life and career to it? Oh, well, it came down to if, if Jesus is Lord, uh, then he is the greatest master to serve. Mm. Um, you know, I, I had no problem serving, serving my country. I was proud of my service to my country. I was proud to be able to serve my community in, in, in various ways, but if Jesus is is the Lord who died and rose for me, uh, then He is the, the the greatest one whom I can serve, mm. and I'm happy to dedicate my life to um, to my Lord, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Mm. That's beautiful. I love it. And now uh, you're training up the next generation of Christian leaders at Ridley. What's the biggest thing on your mind when you're, I guess, discipling or teaching? Oh, you know, it, vary, it varies on the class. And look, and look, every every year we get different questions. Like, you know, for many years the big question is, well, what do we think about LGBT stuff? You know, what's a Christian view of that? Sometimes the Christ, they seem to be very concerned about the Old Testament texts about war and, you know, kill all the Canaanites, kill all the Jebusites, what do we do with that? Sometimes they've got a lot of questions or concerns about religious freedom and Australian culture. Uh, sometimes they're very interested in, you know, uh, Christian response to refugees and climate change. So, you know, every, every year there's different issues and we just walk beside our students and try to help them to develop a, a Christ-shaped mind and conscience 
to be able to negotiate that. You know, we, we don't tell them what to believe, like I'm going to tell you what you will believe about this, mm. but we want them to have a mind that's shaped by Scripture and the Christian tradition and help them understand how to think Christianly about these things and then how to minister in a complex and changing world. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike, and pleasure having you on the show. It's a pleasure talking to you, Amy, and I hope all your listeners have enjoyed this chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deeper Questions. Is secularism good for the world? I'm curious what conclusions you came to and what you thought about this conversation. Does our secular society give you the freedom to exercise your own faith or to have no formal faith at all? During this discussion, I referenced an HBO show based on Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. If you aren't familiar with the book or the show, The Handmaid's Tale envisions a world where the religious right have overthrown democratic government to create a nightmare of misogyny and coercion. I asked Mike earlier what he thought would be worse, a religious or progressive rule. But which do you think would be worse? A theocracy where people are forced to live according to religion or progressive authoritarianism where people are oppressed for saying the wrong thing? Both extremes sound awful. Extreme religious societies and extreme anti-religious societies are driven by fear, either a fear of punishment for sin or a fear of cancellation. I think the real ideal could be summarised by Mike, quoting Hamilton, quoting Micah 4, verse 4. Each shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. The Bible's vision for society isn't oppressive, but one that creates space for all. When I was at uni, I got an invitation to a birthday party, and I'll never forget the words that were written on the invitation, because they made me feel so warm. She wrote, Come dressed as your favourite movie character and be socially accepted. I long for a time where we move away from being afraid of different beliefs, religions and ideas and work towards social acceptance in a wonderfully diverse and complicated society. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting, encouraging and perhaps a little challenging. If you like today's episode, subscribe, share it on your socials, or even better, PM it to a friend who you know would be into it. Also, you can find us on our Third Space Instagram or Facebook. Engage with us there, send us your questions. We'd really love to hear them. I'm your host, Amy Isham, and this is Deeper Questions. Deeper Questions.